Question 1. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Question 2. Why did the chicken cross the road? In this special two-part episode of Akimbo, I'll be answering both questions. The answers are more clear than you thought. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. Okay, which came first, the chicken or the egg? We'll get to that in a second, but first, here's a message from our presenting sponsor. Hi, I'm Erin. And I'm Shallon. And And our small business is Brass Smoothies. Here at Brass Smoothies, we make whole food smoothies free of refined sugar. Uh, We started our business two years ago to fulfill a need in the city that we didn't see was being filled. What we love about being small business owners is really watching the thing that we created grow and succeed and be well received. We're driven to make a more sustainable experience so that we can have a small business for a long time. A challenge that our small business faces every day is reducing our waste and plastic output. Stay tuned to hear the rest of our story and see what has made a difference for us and our small business. Before we can talk about chickens and eggs, we need to talk a little bit about how we all got here. It begins with this. Creatures have sex. All creatures, all the ones we can see anyway, reproduce. And that leads to lots of little creatures, usually way more creatures than will actually grow up. Those babies... Those babies, they look a lot like their parents, but not exactly like their parents, simply a lot like them. So what it means is that traits are inherited. You don't have to know anything at all about genetics to know this just by looking at puppies or kittens or little baby calves. So these babies, some of them have traits that are lucky enough to fit in with the world around them and to help them survive long enough so that they can have babies passing on those traits. And generation after generation, that's what happens. Creatures have babies who look like them, but not exactly. And those traits, the traits that work, get passed on to grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Over time, the creatures start looking a little different. They start adapting, apparently, to the environment. Now, the wording here matters because they're not actually adapting. What's happening is the ones who are left are the ones who fit in. So this actually can happen right before our eyes, certainly over a lifetime, but maybe over a week or two. Consider the famous example of moths in Britain. There are lots of moths in Britain, and most of them were a shade of white. When two white moths have little baby moths, Those moths range from bright white to a little bit gray. Well, this worked great for millennia until they started using coal to power things in the United Kingdom. That coal, of course, put soot all over everything. And the cliffs went from white to dark gray. And over time, what would happen is moths that were born white got eaten by the birds that eat moths. But the ones that were sort of on the gray end of the spectrum, they were the last ones to get eaten because they were a little harder for the birds to find. Those moths would have little baby moths. And the little baby moths ended up a little bit closer to gray on the spectrum. 
And over generations, what happened was the common moth went from white to gray. It evolved over time. A few hundred years ago, the broccoli family of Italy spent decades breeding, carefully, artificially selecting plants from the brassica family until they ended up with a vegetable, a unique vegetable, that they could sell in the market. That's where we got broccoli. And that's where Cubby Broccoli got enough money to buy the rights to make James Bond movies. We can do the same thing with fruit flies. We can take fruit flies in a jar, put just a little bit of pesticide in there, and the, quote, weak ones will die. But the ones who are more resistant to pesticide will actually have more access to food, and they will end up having more kids. Those kids, the ones who survive, will be even more resistant to pesticide, not because they were exposed to pesticide, but because the ones who died, died because of pesticide. Over time, generation after generation, the genes get passed down and the species evolves. One other thing that's worth noting here, as a species evolves, it's still possible for the variations within the species to reproduce with each other. So it might not be pretty, but a Doberman and a Dachshund can still have puppies. But, but if we separate branches of the family tree long enough, they evolve away from each other so much that they can no longer do that. And so we have lizards that got isolated inside a cave and became their own species, or the fact that it's really difficult to get broccoli and cauliflower to crossbreed again, that by isolating species from one another over time, they can no longer reproduce with each other, and they become separate species. It's important to note here that none of the evolution happens while the creature is alive. Lamarck, one of Darwin's predecessors, said that giraffes had long necks, because they spent all day stretching to get to leaves way up above. That's not true. The creatures don't know how you spent your day when you have grandchildren or children. That's not where it comes from. So all of the change of evolution happens when two creatures get together and create a third one. It's this exchange, this exchange of chromosomes, of genes, that lead to the new creature. That's a random process that's then put into the world, and it either works and matches and leads to success, or it doesn't. So this is the opposite of what we've been talking about when we talk about culture, because culture is plastic. Culture changes. Culture happens in real time. None of these things is true for the physical evolution of species over time. They are not responding to the outside world. They are what they are. And then the outside world determines whether or not those traits get passed on. Consider the case of the beak of the finch. Some scientists in the Galapagos have visited a desert island there 
over the course of more than 40 years. It's almost impossible to get to. You have to take a boat and then scale a cliff. On this isolated island are finches, and finches are born with a range of beak sizes. The same way you'll rarely see a human being with a 12-inch long nose, you're probably not going to see one of these finches with a 12-inch long beak. But the beaks do have a range. And what happened year after year is the ones who survived, who were lucky enough to have children, had a beak that matched the weather. So if the weather was damp, the seeds that they needed to eat responded to one sort of beak, stronger or longer, and on years when it was dry, a different kind of beak would help the finches survive. So we can plot the weather in the Galapagos by the beaks of the birds that are born year after year. It's always a little out of sync because it takes a year for the finches who survived in one weather pattern to have the babies that matched the beaks they were lucky enough to have. But we can see it over and over again. So before we get to the idea of chickens and eggs, let's talk about hedgehogs. During the 1930s and 40s in the United Kingdom, seeing dead hedgehogs on the road was a commonplace. That's because slow hedgehogs had no way to deal with cars, brand new, just invented cars. As a result, hedgehogs got squashed all the time. Now, it's pretty rare to see a dead hedgehog. Is that because all the hedgehogs are dead? No. It's because the slow hedgehogs didn't have kids, and the fast hedgehogs did. And so, hedgehogs co-evolved with the invention of the automobile to become faster. I can now answer your chicken question, and then I can begin to tell you why this matters. It turns out that the only thing that can get born from a chicken egg is a chicken. But the thing that can lay a chicken egg is something that's almost a chicken, because that's how the mutation part of evolution works that two creatures get together to have a baby creature, and that baby creature isn't exactly like them. And sometimes that baby creature is enough not like them that we give it a new name. So the chicken, the chicken had to come from an egg, a chicken egg. The chicken egg had to be first. Okay, wise guy, you might ask, how do we explain peacocks? Because after all, there's no good survival benefit to having a huge tail, a tail that you have to eat extra food to support, a tail that makes it difficult to run away from a predator. How is it, then, that peacocks have big tails? Well, it turns out that one of the factors is, did you survive long enough to have grandchildren? The other factor, called sexual selection, is, did a peahen think you were cute enough to mate with you? It turns out there's really good reasons for a peahen to look for a peacock with big feathers because it shows that the peacock has a surplus. It shows that the peacock isn't ill. It shows that the peacock is strong enough and successful enough for his body to invest extra calories in growing all this plumage. And so sexual selection leads to bird calls and to plumage and to all sorts of factors 
that don't make sense from a straight-up survival method. These are signaling strategies, a way to make sure you're finding a healthy and strong mate so that your genes and your kids' genes are likely to be passed on. It's about this point that we need to start anthropomorphizing genes. Because after all, genes don't have a narrative. They don't make decisions. They simply are. But human beings are really good at telling stories. And one of the ways we tell stories is by imagining that that thing that we're talking about is like us. So we say things like, oh, the sun is trying to break through the clouds. Well, no, the sun doesn't even know there are clouds. It's just easier to use that expression. So what is it about genes? Well, Richard Dawkins famously coined the term the selfish gene. It doesn't mean that genes make us selfish. What it means is that all genes care about is having grandchildren. Of course, they don't care because they can't care. They're just a gene. But they act in ways that it seems that they care about survival, that the gene itself wants to reproduce. So if cooperation, as we can see in a beehive, makes it more likely that the bee genes will get passed on, then the gene, quote, chooses, unquote, to cooperate. It's selfish that way. It's selfish in that it seeks places where it can reproduce. And so when the environment changes, a species only has two options. I'm calling them options or choices, even though, of course, the species isn't really deciding. One thing it can do is co-evolve with that change in the world. So when the weather changes or another species starts acting differently, if this species ends up changing in a certain way from generation to generation, more of the genes will get passed on. But other times, it can't get with the program, and so it becomes extinct because the new environment isn't hospitable to those baby creatures. So what does this all mean to us? Well, the other thing that Dawkins talked about is that we, once we start anthropomorphizing genes, can take a small leap and say, what if we think of ideas as little genes? What if we think of ideas as things that spread, and that the more they spread, the happier they are? That over time, ideas evolve. They start one way, then they interact with the world, they reproduce in other people's brains, and they adopt and they change just a little bit. He called these memes. And the science of memes is not genetics, but memetics. And when we think about memetics, when we think about ideas evolving over time, spreading from one brain to another, suddenly a whole bunch of the shifts in our culture make sense. Because the ideas that spread the fastest evolved the fastest, infected the most people, had the most hosts to live in, and thus change the culture again. With just a few principles, evolution can make an extremely complicated world. The idea that there's inheritance, but with mutation. The idea that some genes spread and some don't. The idea that the world keeps changing as genes spread and species adapt or don't adapt all adds up to an extremely complex beautiful world. But the same thing is true for our culture, because we can look at our culture through the eyes of genetics and evolution. 
We can see the beginning of an idea. I know, mass production. Let's make a car with mass production. Well, that advantage leads to another advantage, which leads to the idea spreading to how should we make a pen, which leads to the ballpoint pen instead of the fountain pen, and on and on. Then when we try to examine how our culture changes, one thing that we can look for are the very elements that enable us to see how an ecosystem changes. Something is influential. There's a technology or a rift or a shift. And then a new idea comes along, and it lands in fertile soil, or it doesn't. But if it does, then it spreads. And as it spreads, it replicates. But every time it replicates, it's not quite the same as the time before. And the replications that catch on begin to spread. So, Gil Scott Heron can be the pioneer of spoken word. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to... And then, 30, 40 years later, we discover that rap is popular. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. Did one directly lead to the other? Well, it was certainly its ancestor. And that idea of ancestors, and then over time, ideas, memes, replicating, mutating, spreading, some going extinct, some hopping across, unable to cross, fertilize with the ones that came before, it all informs the way we think about our culture. Along the way, the myth developed that a good idea is all we need, that a good idea comes fully formed out of someone's head, out of an organization, and that's it. Because when we look back at history, we say, oh yeah, a genius thought that one up. But that's not actually what happens. What actually happens is an idea comes into a tiny portion of the world, and maybe it collides with another idea, and maybe it replicates, and maybe it mutates along the way. And that idea, that idea might be perfect for its time, like the newspaper was in 1904. But over time, that idea might become extinct. In our culture, the idea can thrive for a while, but it continues to replicate. It continues to change the culture and may end up making itself extinct. But along the way, that idea replicated and mutated and became something completely unrecognizable to the person who originally put the idea into the world. So when we think about how fast ideas replicate, how much more quickly they are ricocheting around our culture, how much more mutation goes on, when person A sees it and hands it to person B who changes it, and then person C times a million, and then times a million again, is it any wonder that our environment is so raucous? What we've done is built an incredibly fertile ground for ideas to replicate and spread. And many of them go extinct along the way. And the ideas don't really care about us. They're just replicating, infecting us, and then spreading again. That's what our culture is, the sum total of all the ideas we've intercepted and the ideas we've spread to others. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week to talk about why the chicken crossed the road. In a minute, I'll be back with answers to your questions from last week. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. 
At Brass Smoothies, in our continuous challenge to reduce our waste, technology has really helped us find and compare the products we need. From creating schedules, communicating with our staff, point of sale, comparing products and pricing, reaching out to our customers via social media, it really finds its way into every single facet of our day. To see how Lenovo can make a difference for your small business, visit www.lenovo.com smb. I'm Shallon. And I'm Erin. And, and this, this is, is our Difference Maker story. story. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. We love hearing your questions. I hope you can submit one. We'll do our best to answer it. Visit akimbo.link. That's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K. And click the appropriate button. It works best on your desktop or Android phone. We got a few questions this week that I think get to some fundamental misunderstandings about words and about how we see things. So I'm just going to play a little bit of an excerpt from each question because I'm sort of giving each one a new interpretation, and then I'll do my best to answer them. And the narrative that one can um, tell himself about. So is this trade-off always worth it? Are there situations in which it's not worth it and it makes sense to be very risk-averse, maybe such as healthcare or or any other situation where you can't really get a certainty of means. Um, thank you very much. Love the show. It's really common to confuse things that feel risky with things that are risky. Years ago, a few interns who worked for me during a rainy night when I was out of town took a shortcut from my old office to the train station. Instead of walking around the long way, they took a shortcut. It felt fun. It felt efficient. The shortcut ran along the railroad tracks. And you already guessed what happened. Someone slipped and fell on the third rail, was electrocuted. Someone else dragged them to safety. But they also, in the dragging, got shocked. And then a third person managed to rescue the first two. Well, I'm delighted to tell you that everyone is okay But that was stupid. It was stupid because it's insanely risky in a rainstorm to walk near an electrified railroad track. But I can assure you that as these somewhat intelligent human beings were doing it, they didn't feel like they were doing something risky, but they were. And the opposite is even more true. The opposite happens all the time. In our industrialized world filled with guardrails, It's the opposite that's the real issue. It feels risky to ask a question to this podcast. It feels risky to raise your hand in a classroom. It feels risky to tell someone your truth. Blogging every day doesn't cost anything, but it feels risky. It's not risky. It simply feels risky. What we know is that people, for example, who complain about certain kinds of privacy, saying it's a giant risk, turn right around 
and use credit cards and other tracked things because those things don't feel as risky because they're not in the news today. My rant is about the simple act of distinguishing between the two. Are we hesitating to do work we care about, work that matters, because it feels risky or because it is risky? And I got to tell you, the best shortcut I can propose to you is to get ahead of everybody else by doing the things that feel risky to them that you know aren't risky at all. So I guess where where this stems from is that there's a natural tension between building commercial products and technologies, such as the record player. The long tail can exist because of it, because of these technologies, and that changes the culture over time. But then on the other side of it, there's products that are built for the long tail, like the electric guitar, which was, as I'm sure you know, was built in the, the 20s and 30s as something that jazz musicians and eventually blues musicians ended up using. Um, and that product, that innovation, became commercial. So it came from the long tail and it became commercial. In my book, This is Marketing, I coined the phrase the minimum viable audience or the smallest viable audience. And it's easy to conflate that with the idea of the long tail. I want to distinguish between the two here because I think it's an important distinction. The idea of the smallest viable audience begins with the word viable, meaning that if you're only going to make your burritos for two or three people, that's small, but it's not going to keep your burrito truck in business for very long. It's not enough. The goal here when we're doing a project is to identify the smallest audience that we can thrive on, the smallest audience that will help us get by. That if we can delight those people, if we can make an experience for them that's over the top, that's so remarkable they can't help talking about it, they will talk about it. And if they talk about it, the word will spread. And you will be a meaningful specific who stands for something. The alternative is to try to make something for everyone, in which case I assert you will fail. So, a famous example like Twitter Twitter wasn't built for everyone. It was built for geeks and nerds at South by Southwest. It was built for a small cadre of people who wanted that kind of interaction. And that would have been enough. Everything that happened after that was a bonus because they made something on the edges that the masses chose to embrace. So this has nothing to do with the long tail, with Chris Anderson's magical idea that when a store has unlimited shelf space, there's room for everything. And when there's room for everything, half the things that sell are things that people who do have shelf space could never even carry. That what it does is it gives consumers way more choice, but the long tail is rarely good for providers. Because if you're way out on the long tail, there are millions of songs in the iTunes store that sell one or fewer copies a year. None. They sell none. That's not a good place to be on the long tail. It's a rounding error. You can't make a living at that. That's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about instead is the idea of moving out of the basement of the long tail, but being specific, 
Because it turns out there are 7 billion people on earth. And if you're a coach, you only need 100 of them to be your clients. That if you're running a restaurant, you only need 10,000 people to come to your restaurant over the course of a year. Do the math. You don't need that many people to make a difference. The challenge that we have is to find the guts to do the thing that feels risky, to be specific, so that we can say to people we didn't make it for, oh, I'm sorry, it's not for you, but there's a place down the street that I can highly recommend. The ability to do that is essential in a world with this much choice. That's all for this time. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. What are people saying about the Alt-MBA? I just, I needed something, something more, a way to level myself up and find other, find a connection, really be challenged. Maybe I operated for 10 years in my life and this is what was my best space. But then in Alt-MBA, you learned what was your best on Monday? It's going to be better on Tuesday night. And you're going to do it in a space where everyone cares about you so much that they're not going to let you off the hook. Alt-MBA, in fact, is not a course. It's a workshop. It's one month in which a professional coming from all over the globe can work with 100 other professionals that will make you a better leader. Not enough time. We know it's not enough time. Do it anyway. So many people want to self-edit. They want to say, oh, I have writer's block, all these excuses, basically. And so this is just an exercise in getting out of your own way and also collaboration. It's more about how you think, what you're willing to offer yourself and, and the group. I have a clearer vision with my company and who I'm trying to build it for. Really having a lot of skills to speak more confidently about who I wanted to be and where I wanted to go. Find out more at altmba.com.